John chapter 7. And one of the things, uh, let me take you back a, a few months. Uh, don't remember exactly when it was, but several months ago, six, seven, eight, nine months ago, something like that. Uh, Dave and I, as we were praying, decided that the next book we were going to do was a book of John. And so kind of our, our process is we decide upon that together, and then I kind of go and, and lay out the sermons and uh, read through the whole book several times and, and lay it out. And uh, one of the things that I didn't see as prevalently as I have as we're preaching it is this word believe that's, that shows up so many different times, and it, it centers, like the whole book really is centered around this idea of believe, and so it's really important for us to understand that. So we're going to spend some time this morning, trying to come to grips with what it means to believe in something, and then spend some time looking at the verses that we've already looked at where this word believe shows up, and then we'll look at John chapter 7 together and see three groups of people who struggle with believing Jesus. And I hope that at the end of it, we will come, just like my prayer was, that, that God will have illuminated for us areas of our life where we struggle with believing, where unbelief seems to reign in us. And I promise you, no matter how cool you think you are, there's a part of you where unbelief reigns. Uh, and I want to I hope that God will lead us to a place where where we do war with those places in, in our souls and in our hearts. So I want to, this is the, the third week in a row, we've seen this definition, but I want to lay this definition in front of us again uh, so that we can understand the Greek word that's translated as believes or belief or believe. Uh, it's the, this Greek word, pistuo, and it means the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of soul to trust in Jesus or God. So it's coming to grips with, with a truth and giving yourself to that. And so that you so believe in it that it predicts how you'll act and how you respond and how you'll stress and how you won't stress and all of those things. Belief kind of makes that up. I love the phrase law of soul. When you believe in something, it changes your soul and creates a law in your soul, that this is how you must respond. It's gravity. If we throw something up, the law of soul of gravity says it has to come down. So when you give yourself to something completely, when you believe in something, the law of that reigns in how you act and how you respond. You don't have any choice in the matter. And I think that idea is what kind of presses in on us and, and kind of helps us to illuminate the areas of our life where unbelief reigns, where the law of soul doesn't reign. Our law of fear reigns, our law of, of stress reigns, our law of trying to provide for ourselves reigns, all these places where unbelief reigns. And, and I hope that we begin to, to press into those things. Um, here is uh, a rather silly illustration, but it's, it's important. I want everyone to stand up for just a second. Everybody just stand up for just a second. All right? Thank you. Sit back down. Okay, this is a silly illustration, and I'm going back to my youth minister days. But there's an unbelievable amount of truth that's of, of what just happened. You guys, there was a law of soul that you just connected with. All right? 
there is a time you're standing up and you're placing trust, you're believing in this chair. And these chairs, by the way, are really, really old. Most of you guys spend, like, when we're done this morning, everybody's going to kind of, we're going to bring a little cart out here, and we're going to put them all away, and you're going to see how old these chairs are. They don't really fold up properly, and they fold weird, and it's just kind of strange, all right? But we believe in this chair, okay? I can see this chair, and I can understand that, okay, I'm, I'm about 180 pounds, and, and I can, like, I, I, I have knowledge that this chair is going to support my weight. I can look at it and see it. It's metal. It's sturdy. I can, I can trust. I can believe that this chair is going to hold my weight. But at some point, and I want to read this quote for you. Uh, Greg Holder, a pastor in Chesterfield, says this. There comes a moment when you hit the fulcrum and you entrust yourself to this chair. And that, I, that word fulcrum is a, is a big deal, okay? So as I sit down here, at this point, I have yet to entrust myself to this chair. And now my, my quads are now beginning to tighten up, all right? So I'm, I'm entrusting myself to my quads right now, okay? But there's a fulcrum, a point which I can't, I can't stand back up. I'm going to place my trust in this chair. I'm going to believe in this chair. And, and we all just experienced it. You maybe didn't stop and, and, and feel like your, cal, your, your quads beginning to tighten up and, and pressure being placed on your, your quads. You didn't calculate your weight and, and what you had for breakfast this morning, whether or not your quads are going to be able to hold up. You didn't do any of that stuff. But there was a point where there was a fulcrum where you get to about right here where you're just done. The chair is either going to hold you or not. Your quads are no longer in play because they're not going to, there's a fulcrum that's there. You guys, the understanding this, I this physical term fulcrum. And that's this believe for us. There's, there comes a point when we sit down in this chair, there's a fulcrum where we have given ourselves to that chair and we have, we've acknowledged that this chair is strong enough to hold my weight. And then we have decided that we're going to sit in this chair, but there comes a point where there's a fulcrum where there's no going back. And it's, it's that idea that Christ is getting at all throughout the book of John. And it's that idea that, here's the thing, we're, you guys, there's, there's a hint of religion in you, or you wouldn't have come here this morning. So we've acknowledged the fact that there is a God, or maybe there is a God, I'd like to go check him out, or somewhere along that spectrum. And then we've, we've encountered him, but there comes a time when we've got to stop relying upon our quads, we've got to stop relying upon our knowledge of something, and give ourselves to it. And this is the gospel of John. This is the gospel of Jesus. There comes a point in time we have to give ourselves to Christ. And that's all John is talking about throughout his gospel. So I want to spend some time this morning looking at a bunch of verses Really quickly, a couple, this, this is not an exhaustive list that we'll see this morning. And by the way, the, the passages are, are on your bulletin. And, and I would like for you, the, the engaged part, section, engaged God section of your bulletin says, read through these, meditate on these through this week. Don't miss that. If, if you guys don't check out the bulletin, the engaged God section, every week there's something there designed for Monday through Saturday for you to connect with what God has been talking to you about. And this one is, is big and important. I want you to do that. Read through these passages this week and meditate on them. Well, let's read through them this morning. 
This is not an exhaustive list of the use of the word believe in the first seven chapters of John. But it's a few of them. Verse, chapter 1, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And we spent some time defining believe. We went through the fulcrum thing and all that stuff. So that when we see that, when we encounter believe, that's what I want to come in your mind. Giving yourself to something. A law of soul. Uh, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. And by the way, belief in something is only as strong as the, belief, as the object of your belief. And, and I want you to see how most of the time when belief appears, the word in appears after it. It's one thing like Satan believes Jesus. He believes that there was a person named Jesus. Demons believe that there was a person named Jesus. They don't believe in. They, don't, they never reach that fulcrum part. And that's dangerous for people sitting in a church. I, I want to poke at you a little bit here. That's really dangerous. Because we can believe Jesus all we want. But has there been a time, has there been a fulcrum for you where you believe in him, where you're risking. I think of it, when I think of believe in something, I think of a, an old Billy Joel song. You guys know what I'm talking about? What will it take? You hate Billy Joel? Come on. It, it's, it's just the way you are. And it says, what will it take to you believe in me the way that I believe in you? I love you. I give myself to you. That's what the whole song is about. What will it take for you to believe in me the way that I believe in you? And this is, that, that romantic notion is the same thing that we're talking about here. Give, risking something, giving yourself completely to someone or something, believing in something. Go back to John 1, 12. It's where believe in first appears. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who risked something, who got to that fulcrum point and gave themselves completely to Christ. Those people, he gave the right to become children of God. That's huge. I want you to meditate on that this week. John two eleven. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The point of Jesus' miracles are signs so that we might see that he is the Christ. And the result is that we might believe in him, give ourselves completely to who he is. John three sixteen. You guys all know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him gives themselves completely to him and all that he is, they'll have eternal life. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. I want you to see all the, the gifts that come from belief in something, belief in Jesus. The gifts that come from belief in Jesus so far have been eternal life. They've been the right to become children of God. And here is whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 4, 41, And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, 
It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. This was the woman at the well talking. She went back and told them about what Jesus had done, and then they believed what she said. But then for them, it became a fulcrum point where it was no longer, I'm believing in Jesus because of what you told me, but because of how I've given myself to him. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And I've talked already a lot about believing in something, and it's only as good as as the object of your belief. And what I want to highlight for us is this is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. This is God's Chosen One who you are believing in. This is the Savior. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, John 4, 50, guy had come to Jesus and said, heal my son. I believe that you can do it. John 4, 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It was a law of soul. He was convinced of it. He had reached a fulcrum. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's God, Jesus talking, and God sent him, whoever believes, law of soul, giving yourself, risking something to believe in Jesus, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is the, this is the gift. When we reach that fulcrum point, we've passed from death to life. We've given ourselves, but The problem is, is that there are places in our life where this belief doesn't press itself down into. And I hope that God illuminates that for us today. John 5, 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one in whom he has sent. He's talking to religious people here. You might believe something, but you haven't given yourself to it. You don't believe that I am the Christ, Jesus says to these religious people. Let me just say that again. You don't believe that I'm the Christ, Jesus says to these religious people. Religious people, don't be religious people, please. Please. John 6, 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is... This passage sounds a lot like every, all the others that we've read, but I want you to see this. What is the work of God? Not rhetorical. It's on the screen. What is the work of God? That you would believe in him. That's the work of God. Everything you see is pointing to that. Everything that has ever existed is pointing to that. All the good, all the bad, all the indifferent is pointing to that. The work of God is so that you might believe in him. And not just believe that he exists, but fulcrum, give yourself to law of soul sort of belief. And I pray that the places in our life where unbelief reigns would be exposed by the light of God and would be changed by the power of God. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Feed on Jesus. How do we learn this belief? How do we expose the light of our unbelief? How do we do that? Jesus. 
That was last week's message. I said Jesus a thousand times just last week. How do we feed on Jesus? How do we just go to him and he will help your unbelief? Scripture promises it. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 7, 38. A piece that we'll see this morning when we get into our chapter. Whoever believes in me, Jesus talking, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Like that's sort of a unicorn and rainbows verse. Everybody's happy. But the one who gives himself completely to Jesus, living waters flow from that person. Do you, like, I would love for that to be true of me. Like, people just can't wait to be around you because living water flows from you. You ever known one of those people? I have. Like, you just want to be near them. And it's offered to you. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. I think this is really cool. Um, but let's, let's talk about who this belief is. And I want to, something that's going to be on the screen, a, a, a small quote. I want you to, to see this. And I want to put it on the screen and I'm going to read it because I want it to be said exactly the way it's intended. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. At the heart of it, all of those titles are ultimately assigned to the one who will redeem your situation and bring ultimate and final restoration. That's what Christ means. When we believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, which is the point of John, again, we've talked about that, the end of John, John says, I've written all these things so you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is what we're talking about. And this is, the, this is the light that needs to be exposed in the dark areas where unbelief reigns in our hearts here. That Jesus is, in fact, the Christ of everything. The Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. At the heart of all of these things, all these titles are ultimately assigned to the one who will redeem your situation. That's what it means to be, Do you really believe that he can and will and has the ability to redeem your situation and bring complete and final and ultimate restoration to you? Yes. This is what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ in everything. More. Jesus can, came to redeem our brokenness and sin and restore our right standing with God by paying the penalty for our sin, by dying on a cross, defeating death, and by rising from the dead with victory. This is Jesus Christ. He came to redeem your brokenness and your sin. And giving yourself completely to that is what Jesus is always about. I had a really good friend of mine from high school, lives out of state now. Every once in a while, I'll get these texts from him. And it, it was like, do you have any good verses or books to give me for someone who has trouble forgiving themselves? 
So immediately I start thinking about, oh, what, what book could I share with them? A couple of books come to mind, and then a couple of verses come to mind. And the more I think about it, I realize that this is not, this is not just, there's two verses for you. Or go read this Tim Keller book. It's, he's, there is a, a, a darkness of unbelief in him where Jesus as the Christ has not pressed its way into. And we're, we're all there, all of us. When you utter those words, how can I forgive myself? What you're really saying there is, I don't believe that Jesus is really the Christ. Please hear me. When you say something is wrong, you don't really believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's something about, there's something in you that's at war with Jesus being the Christ. Because being the Christ means it's finished. You stand before God right. Holy. And anything that tries to convince you of anything other than that is unbelief on your part to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. You have given yourself completely to Jesus in these ways, but not these. You haven't completely reached the fulcrum of your life, and you're like these people we're going to encounter in John chapter 7. Let's get there. That was a really, really long preamble to this chapter, so we're going to go really fast. John 1, or John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand. I want to stop for a second and tell you guys what the Feast of Booths is. I learned this this week. I kind of had an idea of what the Feast of Booths it was, but I didn't totally until this. This is, here's, this is really cool. It is, usually happens in the fall at the end of harvest time. And it's really just a, a big party. Yay, God. That's the Feast of Booths is yay, God. And here's the, here, this is the really cool part. Like, I was brought up in a church that made me, like, like a little bit afraid of, like, celebration and a party and, like, being crazy, excited. Ex- I, I was, like, nervous about that. For some obvious reasons, some, some other obvious reasons, to, when I was like 15, if I would have seen somebody like exclaiming and getting really excited and raising their hands or maybe like emotion, I would have like, something is wrong. But this is, the feast of booths is this. We have encountered God and seen his provision for our lives and our response to that is, yay. And like, it's, it's bigger than that. But, <laughs> but you understand and this is what the Feast of Booths is. And it's something, here, listen to me, listen, like, chuckle at that, right, but, but don't stay chuckling. Come back, all right? Because the point of that, that the Jews did this every year at the same time. They harvested all the crops that God had provided for them, and then they, they had a party and enjoyed what God had given to them. And in the midst of enjoying what God had given to them, they brought praise back to him. And it was a requirement of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to do this together and have this big, huge party every year 
without fail. There was four times for the Jews that they needed to engage God for a party. And this was one of them. The Passover is another. But this one is not designed to look back on something that was like a crazy point where God happened to, to change them what the Passover was. This one was to celebrate God's provision. And this is what's happening here when Jesus encounters this story. Jesus decides not to go because why am I going to go up there? Because people up there are just trying to kill me. Go back. Uh, verse 3. He's encountering his brothers here. So his brothers said to him, and this is, there's just sarcasm all over what they say because they don't really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, go show yourself to the world. In other words, if you really are the Christ, and I don't believe that you're the Christ, but if you say that you are, go, go prove it to everybody. They don't really believe that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 5 tells us that, for not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, skip down, we're going to skip ahead here. Skip down to, to verse 11. This is the, sec- the first group is his brothers don't believe him. The second group of people who wrestle with unbelief is this a big crowd. This shows up in, in John 7 verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Remember, they're at this party, and if he's really the, the Christ, you would think he would be at the party. And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. There's fear, there's unbelief, there's uncertainty. Even the people that, that believed him didn't really believe him. They didn't get to this fulcrum. They're still wrestling with tight quads. Back to our, our, our chair story. Um, they're still wrestling with that. They're sort of, but not really. And I, I fear there's a lot of us that spend a lot of our time there. Like, we're going to almost get to the fulcrum, but we're going to rely on the strength of our quads to keep us from having to give ourselves completely to Jesus. I'm going to pause while you pull that stick that I just poked at you out of your eye. So, let's go back to our story. Verse 12, And there was muttering among them, among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Like, they get close. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. They don't even get close. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. They feared people more than the Son of God, the Christ, which doesn't make sense. Except when we try and point that finger at ourselves, we fear people more than we fear the Christ. And if he's really the Christ, you've got nothing to be afraid of. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, and this thing lasted about 10 days, about the middle of the feast, which, did you hear what I just said? They had a 10-day party. Sign me up, right? About the middle of the feast, Jesus decided to go up to the temple, and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man has learning that he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. This word teaching isn't just like his 
like the thing that he was on about all the time. They kept saying over and over again, his teaching is not his. his. His word is not his, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whatever I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority speak, seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In other words, I'm not here to get you guys to like me. I'm here to get you to pay attention to God. Verse 18, 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd, people struggling with unbelief. We had his brothers first and now the crowd. Answers, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus said, I did one deed and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because of the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Back to the other story where they got mad at Jesus because he healed the guy on the Sabbath day when their law permitted Moses to do what Moses did on the Sabbath day, but they were getting upset at him because he healed a man. Ultimately, Jesus is poking at their unbelief. You don't believe that I'm the Christ. Otherwise, you would have given yourself completely to me. Verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And this is the response to Jesus poking at them, coming from unbelief. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So they're kind of thinking it, but not sure. Verse 27. But we know that there is a man who comes from, I'm sorry, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, question mark. But I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people did believe in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? Now, verse 32 we're going to engage the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who had unbelief. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And again, this is like party central, right? These people are here for one purpose, and it's to throw a party. And now Jesus is coming, poking at their unbelief. And they're wrestling with their unbelief. Some are believing, some are not. Some are wanting to kill him. Some are afraid of him. Some are afraid of the Pharisees. It's just a lot of confusion that's happening. Do you ever get there, by the way? Like religion, like church, like Bible, like Jesus stuff? Just kind of confusing. You don't know what's going on, and you're just, things are everywhere. You know you're supposed to be engaging here, but it just seems weird and different and hard. It's okay to say yes. I'm, like, I've been to seminary, and I'm your pastor, and I'm there a lot. Just what, what in the world is really even going on here? 
like in life. I'm confused. What's, what's the point of this? And this is what's happening to these people. And, and those that seek Christ find him. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him when the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the officers to arrest him. And Jesus said, I will be with you for a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I'm going, where I am, you cannot come. We have the benefit of perspective. You know, Jesus is talking about going back to heaven with God. These people who wrestle with unbelief have no idea what he's talking about. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? There's pride there, right? This, there's no, this, I'm really good at finding people. I'll find where, where there's no way he's going to, where's he going to go? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Three groups of people, his brothers, the crowd, and the religious leaders, all have been presented with Christ himself. And they don't believe, they don't give themselves to that belief. They've never reached this fulcrum. They've never reached this law of soul. And here comes the fulcrum for you and I. Verse 37 and 38. And we'll end here. On the last day of the feast, I think there's poetry there, by the way. On the last day of the feast. The last day of the week designed for us to engage the provision of God. We look around and, and we eat plenty and we we have plenty, and, and there's leftovers. There's much to spare. This is Thanksgiving. At the end of Thanksgiving, this is what happens. Jesus stands up after these people have had their fill and seen Jesus for who he is and the provision that he's given to them. He talks more about the real provision. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. These people have just spent 10 days doing nothing but physically please gratifying themselves. Drinking all they wanted. It was, there was plenty, leftovers, lots to spare. They have spent all this time. And they, they probably have this reflection. We did the same thing last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. That's what they did. And now, as they have ate and drank their fill, here's Jesus saying to them, knowing that they know this is the last day of the feast, and tomorrow they're not going to have all this celebration stuff, and they might, in fact, be hungry, or they might, in fact, be thirsty in a bit. Here's Jesus encountering that, helping them to fight the unbelief that's coming. Hear me. Hear me, please. In times of plenty, in times of struggle, Jesus is the living water. He is the, the bread of life. And this is what he's talking about. On the last day of the feast, if any one of you thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flow rivers of living water. Feast on Jesus. 
I want you to think about times where Jesus has shown himself to be strong and powerful and filled with authority and giving you belief. Giving you this fulcrum sort of belief. This is Jesus standing before you. This is God persevering the words of Jesus to speak to you. Come to me and I'll give it to you. Feed on me. Feast on me. I'll give it to you. This is Jesus the Christ. So that when you want to send your text to a friend you haven't seen in 20 years, but you know as a pastor and might be able to give you something, and say, help me with my inability to forgive myself. This is the message. This is the response. Jesus. His work is finished. He is the Christ. He is the Christ. Chase that. Meditate on. What does that mean that Jesus is the Christ? It means every need you've ever had is satisfied in him alone. You are not the Christ. Your job is not the Christ. Your spouse is not the Christ. Your church is not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The Savior. He will redeem the brokenness. He even brings the brokenness so that we might see him as the redeemer of the brokenness. So that we might depend upon him because in a healthy body is not found the Christ. So he might have to break it so you wouldn't stop depending on yourself or stop depending on something that's not him to be the Christ. Jesus is. Like I could have stood up here, saved us all about 30 minutes and just walked up and said, Jesus is. Because that's the whole point of the gospel of John. It's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus is. Let's pray, and as we do, as we encounter response time, I want you to do this. I want you to think about areas of your life where you don't really believe that he is the Christ. And ask him to war on those areas. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your word. God, help our unbelief. Help my unbelief. Bring us to the fulcrum where we give ourselves to you. We risk everything to call ourselves children of God. We love you, but we want to love you more. We believe you, but we want to believe you more. In Christ's name, amen.